Welcome to Science Talk, the podcast of Scientific American for the seven days starting July 12th. I'm Steve Mursky. This week on the podcast, Crime and Punishment. We'll talk to Max Hauck, the author of an article in the July issue of Scientific American called CSI Reality. He'll talk about the effect the CSI shows have had in the real world and about real crime scene investigation versus what's portrayed on TV. Also, there's been a big corporate espionage case involving Coke and Pepsi. We'll hear from John Sisher, the editor and publisher of Beverage Digest, about that. Plus, we'll test your knowledge about some recent science in the news. First up, Max Hauck. He's a trace evidence expert and forensic anthropologist. He was with the FBI lab for a decade before becoming the director of the Forensic Science Initiative at West Virginia University. And he was on the road visiting family in Sherwood, Michigan, when I caught up with him by phone. Hi, Professor Hauck. How are you? I'm great, Steve. How are you? Pretty good. Thanks for talking to us today. Firstly, you talk in your article in the current issue of Scientific American about the CSI effect or the alleged CSI effect. Let's let's talk about what the CSI effect is and whether or not it's real. Well, the CSI effect has been defined as uh, an overreaching set of expectations about forensic science uh, based on popular media perceptions of forensic science uh, from television and the movies. And it got tagged with CSI effect simply because of the popularity of that of that show. Well, rather than just define it, let's talk in terms of an example of what this so-called CSI effect is. The jurors in a case having uh, presumably been exposed to television have this different set of expectations than jurors in the past may have had. Is that basically it? Pretty much. Um, there's also the expectation that there will always be physical evidence and that physical evidence will always be useful in the case. So people expect DNA evidence in every single case, regardless of whether it's even necessary for uh, for a particular charge to be proven. Exactly, or fingerprints, or gunshot residue, or you know whatever kind of evidence they project that they should see, uh, whether it's actually there or not. Okay, so we have anecdotal evidence for a CSI effect. There are prosecutors who come back and say, my jury is just, you know, wild for physical evidence that we just don't have. And we have eyewitness testimony, for example, and they're discounting that because we don't have blood uh, or gunshot uh, evidence. Exactly. And, you know, some of that is, is uh, has been put down to uh, post hoc reasoning and maybe some sour grapes on the part of a prosecutor who may not have got the case that he or she wanted. But, uh, there are discrete examples of jurors making statements after uh, cases, for example, the Robert Blake case, uh, saying, well, we expected to find X and Y, and they just never showed that, and so uh, we didn't think we should uh, find them guilty. Right, and he was acquitted, the actor Robert Blake, exactly. when there was uh, pretty strong circumstantial evidence that he was, in fact, guilty? Right, and they were looking for... Uh, types of evidence that wouldn't necessarily um, be there in, in, under those circumstances. So um, they, in essence, ignored the real evidence and were pining away for uh, evidence that didn't exist. Is there a quantifiable CSI effect, though? Has there, have there been studies to, to show that it does, in fact, exist and jurors are, in fact, being influenced by television? There are no studies uh, that... that factually prove that there's a CSI effect, as in uh, a higher proportion of cases now 
uh, going in a certain direction as opposed to uh, prior to uh, that television show being on the air or the effect being defined. Um, it is, as you said earlier, it's all anecdotal, although some of the anecdotes are fairly are fairly straightforward in, in terms of uh, what the jurors' expectations were and what the prosecutor found. But uh, no one yet has uh, published a study, a real actual study on the, on the uh, CSI effect. Uh, there's some indications with uh, studies of uh, or surveys of students um, and that sort of thing. And I know there's a few people who are doing graduate research uh, for their degrees in this area, but it's kind of hard. It's one of those moving targets. You know, the the uh, society grabs an idea and starts running with it, and by the time you can set up a study, you may be halfway through or maybe near the end of the effect. We are seeing changes in behavior on the parts of some law enforcement agencies and some prosecutors based on the presumption of a CSI effect, a lot more evidence being collected. Definitely. You're seeing two areas of activity. One on the end of the, on the law enforcement end, um, they watch TV too, and it may have been a while since they were at the academy, so they may think some of this stuff actually happened. And so they want to overcollect evidence, uh, just to, to make sure that they don't miss anything. And uh, because, you know, those lab guys are real smart and they can figure this stuff out. So they'll collect, overcollect at the, at the crime scene and bring in way more evidence than they probably need to to the laboratory. And what happens to all that evidence? Well, that's where we get backlogs, uh, because the more evidence you have, uh, the more items you have to sort through and catalog and uh, warehouse before you can get down to that handful of things that you really do have to analyze. And if that happens in every case, if you start getting in two or three times more evidence than you normally would in every case, you very quickly develop a backlog. Um, on, on the legal end of it, you now have attorneys, uh, when they poll juries, uh, or voir dire them to, to see if they're suitable for sitting on a jury, they'll ask them, do you watch a lot of CSI? Do you watch a lot of television? Uh, which to me is sort of ironic because now you've got a TV show about forensic science and, and law enforcement and the law actually affecting what attorneys do because they're afraid of something that might happen. Uh, it, it, to me, it's just, it, it seems very tenuous, and yet the attorneys are very keen on making sure that they uh, avoid the effect, even though it hasn't been defined. So, in those terms, there really is a CSI effect. It, 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 yeah, it's sort of it's sort of a, a circular reasoning. If we want to avoid the CSI effect, then we kind of create one, and then we avoid it because uh, we now are avoiding the thing we created. <laughs> right, a self-fulfilling kind of uh, belief system. Exactly. Um, so overall, have the CSI or Law and Order, all the all the crime shows that show a lot of evidence gathering, have they helped or hurt the real profession of crime scene investigation? I, I think overall, on a balance, it's helped. Um, it has raised the profile of forensic science enormously. More people are aware of it now than ever before. Uh, more students, even down to the high school level. Uh, are interested in it. They think it's cool. It's neat. They're going into science. So even if they don't go into forensic science, they may end up saying chemistry or physics or biology or mathematics or something like that. Um, and there's been more awareness raised of the, of the real situation that the nation's crime laboratories are in. Uh, so I think overall on the balance, it, it's had a positive effect, although I'm sure there's some prosecutors who would argue with me on that. 
Give me a quick survey of some of the major differences between the way crime scene investigation is portrayed on television and how it is in real life. Um, sure. The, the main differences are uh, what you see on TV. The people do everything. Uh, they're cops. They do the crime scene. They do the lab work. Uh, they interview suspects. They arrest people. That just doesn't happen. Uh, forensic science, law enforcement, uh, all are sufficiently difficult careers that they require their own specialized education and training. The reality is that forensic science is much more segmented and specialized than what you see on TV. Uh, second of all, the crime laboratories that you see on TV typically um, are way better outfitted uh, and much bigger and much better staffed than, than the real forensic laboratories you may have down the road. And um, I would say uh, the third main uh, aspect is that the methods that they utilize on the television show, while maybe rooted in uh, some reality, gets lost in the in the in the uh, the, the wash necessary for a good entertainment. Um, it, you don't do a DNA analysis in half an hour. Um, it takes days, practically weeks, realistically. A funny little note. The writers from CSI used to call me a lot. They don't anymore, and I'm not sure why. Um, but they used to call me a lot. My wife, who's also a forensic scientist, told me once. She said, the next time one of them calls, tell them to get a new spectrum. And I said, what, what do you mean? She said, well, they keep using the same mass spec spectrum uh, for evidence on the show. Every time they, they Every generate time. a mass spec, you would see the exact same spectrum. The exact same spectrum. Every time. And and I said, oh, by the way, my wife says, get a new spectrum. He said, she noticed? I said, that's what we do for a living. Of right. course we're going to notice. It's paper. It's cheap. It's a prop. Print out a new one. Why don't they just turn the lights on when they go to the crime scene? What's with the flashlights? Yeah, whenever I was at a scene, we just we turn on the lights. Um, and I guess it's dramatic effect, but, you know, I'm Having worked in the field, you realize that the things that happen to people, horrible as they are, uh, have enough inherent drama that you could probably do a show that isn't quite so slick uh, and still make it realistic and uh, and entertaining. Professor Hauck, thanks very much. Anytime, Steve. Thank you. Max Hauck's article called CSI Reality is in the July issue of Scientific American and on our website, www.siam.com. And if you go all the way back to the end of the February 8th podcast, that's the first podcast, you can hear a short performance of the non-existent TV show CSI Reality brought to you exclusively by the Scientific American players. We'll be right back. For breaking news about science and technology, visit www.siam.com slash news today. Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories, only three are true. See if you know which story is Totally Bogus. Story one, global warming could stomp on the U.S. wine industry, causing big reductions in suitable wine grape growing areas over the next century. Story two, within the next few weeks, inhalable insulin will be available for diabetics. Story three, the same genes can behave very differently in males and females, according to a new mouse study. And story four, an audio daily double. This clip is an actual soundbite of Alaska Senator Ted Stevens explaining the information 
Nation Superhighway in a discussion of net neutrality. You can't drive a car on a highway, which is very hard to do when you're after 45 to drive on any modern highway. And if you're going to have to stay home, you need radio and television to go along for receipts. We'll be back with the answer, but first, I heard last week about this espionage case involving Coke and Pepsi and thought, you know, this is a chemistry story. So to find out more, I called John Sisher. He's the editor and publisher of Beverage Digest in Bedford Hills, New York. We spoke this past Friday. Mr. Sisher, thanks very much for talking to me today. My pleasure. Good morning. Good morning. Briefly summarize this Coke-Pepsi corporate espionage case. Uh, Sure. Um, Basically... What the government is alleging is this. A a Coke employee and two other individuals attempted to sell um, Coke information to Pepsi. Uh, The information included a a sample of a new product and certain other information. We don't know the specifics. Pepsi received a letter, informed Coke. Uh, Coke uh, informed the FBI. The FBI conducted basically a sting operation and uh, uh, arrested these three individuals, uh, I guess, two days ago, and uh, that's where things stand now. They've appeared in court uh, yesterday, Thursday, and uh, 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 it'll, it'll proceed from there. So can you tell me, from a scientific point of view, what I'm interested in is, with modern chemical analytical technology, once the product has been produced, it should be fairly straightforward to for any competitor to do an analysis and figure out exactly what's in a product and in what quantities. You're absolutely right. I mean, the the secret formula of Coke is, is certainly still locked in a bank vault in Atlanta. However, there's no doubt in my mind from talking to um, flavor technologists and food technologists over, over the years that Anybody with a modest amount of money and access to a high-tech chemistry lab could certainly break down the ingredients and uh, and uh, find out what exactly the formula for Coke, Pepsi, or practically any other beverage is. But here's the point. If you and I decided that we were going to start a new cola next year, you and I could certainly come up with a product that tastes probably exactly like Coke or Pepsi for that much. What we couldn't do is we couldn't call it Coke. Um, and the, their, the real power behind Coke is the brand. Right. The, the, the secret formula is a wonderful myth. It's a bit of lure, but that is not key. What's key is the brand. Right. So whatever corporate secrets are worth stealing are probably in the marketing department, not in the, uh, not in the actual food processing department. That's right. I mean, I don't know exactly what product was is alleged to have uh, was tried to be sold. But, he, but here, here's what happens now in the beverage business. Both Coke and Pepsi are in a mode now where they are rapidly introducing new products all the time. Uh, this year, for example, Coke introduced several, several new versions of Coca-Cola, Black Cherry Vanilla Coke and Coke Black. They're always introducing new products, Vanilla Coke, Lime Coke, Pepsi, etc., the secret here is not what the formula is or what the ingredients are. The secret is what move is each company going to make next year. So what what's at stake here is the product that is alleged to have been tried to have been sold. 
was, would give theoretically a competitor some knowledge on what Coke might have been planning for next year. It has nothing to do with the ingredients of the formula. Okay. Now, are all these new products really just designed to get me to buy good old Coke or Pepsi? No, not really. I mean, the American consumer is actually becoming a little bit more like the Japanese consumer. The Japanese consumer, for some time, has has really had a love affair with innovation and new products. Some successful products in Japan actually have a life cycle of less than one year. We're not there in the United States yet, but American consumers are clearly in a experimenting mode. They like novelty. They like new things. They like new products. And the beverage companies, all of them, have been responsive to that. So we're, we're in a period right now where the companies are rapidly line-extending their core brands in order to uh, create uh, you know, a diversification for the consumer. And what does this mean for any kind of a small company that is trying, like, as you were talking about, if we wanted to start a cola company, what does this mean for anybody trying to get in on the ground floor? Um, one would have to have their head examined to start a cola company in the U.S. because <laughs> Coke and Pepsi so dominate that business. Where the opportunities are, are in niches of the beverage business where Coke and Pepsi and Cadbury aren't dominant. The secret today, if you want to get in the beverage business, is find a niche where Coke and Pepsi don't already have it to have dominance with one or more of their products. And finding a good chemist is secondary. Um, knowing how to market and distribute a product and having the financial staying power is very important. Having said that, there is definitely a move in the U.S. to to toward functional beverages, beverages which do more than just refresh and taste good. And we're seeing huge growth in, in areas like sports drinks, which hydrate energy drinks, which provide function. Americans are beginning to look for more than just good taste and refreshment from their beverages. So in, ingredient technology is actually becoming more important at just at this, at this, this point in time. Mr. Sisher, very interesting. Thank you very much. Anytime. Take care. Beverage Digest's website, www.beverage-digest.com. Their homepage includes a handy measurement converter, I discovered. Units include quarts and gallons, as well as the more exotic hectoliters, beer barrels, and 12-packs. Seriously. Now it's time to see which story was totally bogus. Let's review the four stories. Story one, global warming could severely reduce arable wine grape lands. Story two, inhalable insulin for diabetics. Story three, the same genes can act differently in males and females of the same species. And story four, this clip is actually Senator Ted Stevens explaining the Internet. You can't drive a car on a highway, which is very hard to do when you're after 45 to drive on any modern highway. Time's up. Story one is true. The area is good for growing wine grapes could be cut by 50% or even more by the end of the century if the earth continues to heat up. That's according to a study published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences and supported by the National Science Foundation, the National Center for Atmospheric Research, and NASA. Uh, But what do those guys know? Story two is true. The Boston Globe reports that inhalable insulin should become available sometime this month with a few different inhaler versions expected from various companies in the next few years. Story three is true. The same genes behave very differently in males and females, in mice anyway, according to a new study in the August issue of the journal Genome Research. But what's true for mice genes is usually true for ours, too. Researchers studied gene activity in brain, muscle, liver, and fat tissue and saw widely different activity levels. Surprise, male and female brains saw the lowest differences in activity. 
all of which means that the clip alleged to be Senator Ted Stevens explaining the Internet is totally bogus, because that was actually baseball great Casey Stengel testifying before Congress 48 years ago this week. Now we'll hear recent comments from Senator Ted Stevens on the Internet and net neutrality, followed by more from Casey's testimony from 1958. And again, the Internet is not something that you just dump something on. It's not a big truck. It's it's a series of tubes. And if you don't understand, those tubes can be filled. And if they're filled, when you put your message in, it gets in line. It's going to be delayed by anyone that puts into that tube enormous amounts of material Enormous amounts of material. Now, I would say I wouldn't know, but I would say the reason why they'd want it passed is to keep baseball going as the highest baseball sport that has gone into baseball and from the baseball angle. I don't know. Stevens and Stengel just remind me of each other. You can hear all of Ted Stevens' fascinating comments about net neutrality at www.publicknowledge.org slash node slash 497. And check out Scientific American Editor-in-Chief John Rennie on Stevens at our blog, blog blog.siam.com. It's the July 4th entry titled, Ted Stevens Takes Us Down the Tubes. And the May 31st podcast dealt with net neutrality. You can find it at www.siam.com slash podcast. And you can read all of Casey Stengel's brilliant 1958 congressional testimony at tinyurl.com slash LGL6P. That's P as in play ball. Don't miss Mickey Mantle's testimony immediately after Casey's. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm John Rennie, Editor-in-Chief of Scientific American. Our magazine is now available in a digital edition. Not only does your Scientific American digital subscription include the full contents of every new printed issue, it also entitles you to access our digital archives from 1993 to the present. For more information, visit www.siamdigital.com. Well, that's it for this edition of the Scientific American Podcast. Our email address is podcast at siam.com. And also remember that Science News updated daily on the Scientific American website, www.siam.com. For Science Talk, the podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. (laughs) 